It's a body of longitudinal data that now covers from uh, 1992 until today called the Alton Retirement Study. A majority of the world's population is now covered by these surveys. Welcome to The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder, the Joseph Douglas Green, 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is Robert Willis, Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Michigan. He is renowned for his work in labor economics and especially for his work on the economics of family structure and the economics of the life cycle, as well as the collection of data associated with that. Bob, welcome to The Work Goes On. Thank you. Glad to be there. Let's begin the discussion by talking about your background. Where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Great Falls, Montana, and uh, at age at age one, I uh, moved to... Uh, Renton Highlands, Washington, where my father was a uh, uh, was engaged in a riveting wings on B-17s uh, during the, during the Second World War, uh, and uh, uh, I ended up growing up in in uh, uh, growing up in Seattle uh, uh, until I went to college, uh, and uh, so that was that was my uh, Origins. Now, I have to ask you this. I know you went to Dartmouth. How in the world did you get from the state of Washington to Dartmouth? Okay, well, um, <clears throat> I had expected, uh, like most of everybody in my, uh, in my high school class, that I would go to, uh, that I'd go to the University of Washington. But I got a phone call uh, from a uh, young lawyer who had um, an Ivy League Ivy League legal training, who is a Dartmouth alum, who called me and asked me if I would like to come to a presentation at Dartmouth. The lawyer's name was Slade Gorton, uh, and he later became, uh, he moved to Washington, uh, to Seattle, basically on the grounds that Ivy League lawyers were a dime a dozen on the East Coast, they were pretty rare, <laughs> <laughs> pretty rare in the Northwest, and uh, he actually was right. He ultimately became a uh, attorney general of the state of Washington, and then a served two terms as a senator from the state of Washington later in his career. When I went to the presentation, I found out three things. One is they, they bragged about their uh, uh, math department, and I was interested in mathematics at the time. They also... Um, they also said that, that Dartmouth owned its own ski ski mountain, which intrigued me. At that <laughs> that was a, that was a big factor, and uh, third, thirdly, and the biggest factor is that they gave scholarships. And I came from a family without much money, and uh, and uh, uh, having a scholarship to go to the uh, East Coast was. Uh, was intriguing enough that I did it. Actually, I, I, you probably were a little surprised. Uh, it's not actually on the coast. 
No, no, no I, I did realize that it wasn't on the coast. I, I, I investigated the geography, particularly the ski part. Quite <laughs> <careful>. <laughs> I see. Are you still a skier? Well, I, I, I was sort of a skier then, and I'm, uh, I stayed sort of a skier for a long time. I, I, I won't. Uh, uh, I did manage to uh, uh, break a pair of skis at Dartmouth, and in my <laughs> sophomore year, I, I had a, a knee injury and had a uh, had to have a uh, uh, operation on my on my knee, and so I missed that year of skiing. <laughs> How did you get into economics? Was there someone there at Dartmouth? Well, it was, that that was actually quite interesting as well. Was, uh, during the summer before I was admitted to uh, to to Dartmouth, I got a, a thing to fill out uh, the first quarter's uh, curriculum, and I filled it out. And I but I was asked to have one kind of course that I could be assigned if something didn't happen with some other course. So when I and so I put down economics as this as this extra course. So I think I had opted for physics and a math course and and uh, and uh, uh, and an English course and then uh, a required English course and then uh, economics was the option. Well, it turned out when I arrived at Dartmouth, I had exempted out of English, and so I went into economics. And I scarcely knew what a bank was, <laughs> but it was being, it was it was taught by Colin Campbell, who had been a, a student of, uh, of Milton Friedman's at, uh, when he was in graduate school, and he taught a very very nice course. They tried very hard to hide the mathematics in it, but I did get some inkling that this really hard finite <laughs> finite difference kind of. Uh, methodology that was there was was related to math. That's very interesting. He's quite a well-known guy, Colin Campbell, in yeah. this day. So now, the next step, of course, is you you're go back to Seattle. I guess you're tired of skiing uh, or other things, and uh, to the University of Washington. Did, what happened in between time? Did you go straight back to the University of Washington for a PhD? Actually, I went back to Washington without without any fixed plan about what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I had uh, looked at different different ideas. One of the ideas that I had, I really got interested. I started out wanting to be a mathematician, discovered that that was uh, not the right thing to be, to be in for me uh, when I was at Dartmouth. And I ended up majoring in economics, but I didn't really catch on until my senior year, and so I had relatively mediocre grades, um, not good enough to get into MIT, for example, and um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't have any um, any income left over, and I so I went back to Seattle, and I did what I uh, had been doing since I was age 16. I worked on the Washington State Ferries, and uh, that summer, I had long days and nights on the weekends, and it was off during the week. So I decided to take a macroeconomics course, one in summer school at the University of Washington. And uh, the teacher of that was a guy named Dudley Johnson, who was uh, quite a character uh, that I learned about later. And I did pretty well in that uh, in that class. And, and there was a group of people who, who were um, scheduled to be teaching assistants at that year, who 
went to Central America on some professor's uh, project. And so there was an opening in there. And so at the last minute, I got it. I, I suggested that I should apply to the graduate program, and I got in, and I became a uh, TA, uh, and uh, that's how I got to, uh, uh, and that provided enough income for me to uh, to go to graduate school and and stop being a stop working on the ferry boat. Well, yeah, I was I was actually a, an ordinary seaman, and I. Still have my Siemens papers. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're not the only one who's had uh, something like Siemens papers who I've had in the podcast. It range all the way from Ron Oaxaca, who was in the Navy, to Bob McCursey, who did a, an ROTC scholarship at Penn in order to be in the Navy. So you're, you're in a long line of labor economists, all of whom have been on the water for one reason or another. <laughs> What, now, who was your dissertation advisor at, at Washington? My advisor was John Floyd, who was a, uh, uh, inter, who was a student, who had been a student at the Chicago of, uh, of um, Harry Johnson's and taught international trade. And I was actually interested in finding a dissertation in international trade, uh, but I couldn't, I, I couldn't come up with a, uh, with a topic. Uh, the other person I worked with uh, had worked with was Charlie Tebow, did uh, public public finance, and I thought about a pro- project there, and I couldn't figure out what to do there that looked like a good topic. And then finally, Floyd said, "Well, I've always thought that uh, economists could say more about population than than they have," and for some reason or other, that struck a that struck a light bulb in my, and so I started going to the library, I read a bunch of stuff in uh, demography, uh, and some of it written by economists, and most of it seemed to me to be very weak, and and, uh, I finally ran across an article that was buried in a NBER volume by Gary Becker that uh, talked about a theory of, of fertility. And I, uh, I was sort of inspired by that and ended up writing my dissertation uh, on, uh, on this. So I didn't really have anybody who was advising me on the topic that I, that I had. Distinguished faculty, but not known for working in, uh, in the area you worked in. And I know that that dissertation, I think, became uh, an early paper of yours uh, that I think probably to this day is, is well known. Can you describe what you found? Well, so what I did... Was I uh, looked at the I, I looked at this uh, uh, paper of Becker's and I, I wanted to construct a theory uh, where uh, I ended up using a number of the Becker Becker ideas and putting them together actually with some uh, some theorems from international trade. Uh, it was a, basically as a theoretical paper in which I in which I argued that the that uh, the non-market uh, uh, activities of, of mothers uh, was an economically valuable thing, and uh, people valued the, their cho- the, having children. They also valued the quality of their children and not just the quantity, and that uh, women's labor force participation was determined by a trade-off between the shadow prices of uh, time working uh, spent at home and uh, the uh, market value of their labor if they went to work. And uh, so I put all of that stuff together and showed that as income rose, I used the 
uh, Ripsinski theorem from uh, international trade to say that as, uh, as uh, household income rose, the uh, ratio of money to time increased, and that tended to increase the chattel price of the woman's time and tended to induce some um, uh, uh, substitution between quantities and qualities that, uh, that worked in favor of having more investment in the children. So that was, that was kind of the idea of the paper. And it was a very long paper. And I took, it took me a very long time of time to write it. I was at, my first teaching job was at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And I arrived there uh, recommended by Charlie Thibault, who was, who was who had been a Wesleyan undergraduate. And I didn't have a dissertation at that time, so I worked kind of for about three or four years at, at, uh, at Wesleyan and uh, was writing that dissertation. And finally, I had a, uh, my connection, my next connection was really to the foundations of, of uh, labor economics is that I ended up getting an offer to come to the NBER, which was then in New York, where the, uh, all the Becker and, and Mincer and their students and others were assembled. And uh, I arrived in New York and, and uh, met a bunch of other people. And that was, uh, I, I listened to your podcast with Robert Solo, and he said, talked about the importance of groups. And the history of economics, and uh, there was a group in the uh, in the uh, uh, in the, in New York at that time that was just absolutely amazing, and uh, that that had a huge influence on my. Did you did you actually write your dissertation at the National Bureau in New York? No, I wrote it at Wesleyan. We had a at uh, Wesleyan we had a really very good faculty there, and we had a visitor who was a well known. Who was a well-known Dutch econometrician, and he was apparently on the NBER mailing list, and he knew that I was was working on fertility behavior, and he saw that there was a there was a paper that was being given at the NBER had a weekly had a weekly seminar uh, that was being given at the NBER that was on on population, and he gave me he told me something like well. I don't know how it is in your country, my country, uh, having somebody else working on this topic uh, would be kind of the end of my career. <laughs> <laughs> so I was frightened enough that I decided to uh, come down to New York and I, and I went in, I found out where the NBER was and where the seminar was, and I went, and I went to the seminar. You crashed the seminar. I crashed the seminar. <laughs> And I came in, and it was quite a remarkable, quite a remarkable thing. One that turned out to my comfort that the pa the paper was pretty unimpressive paper. Uh, and so, so in my country, I didn't think my career was ended. <laughs> uh, and the other thing was, uh, I was a strange face in a in a around a table where everybody else seemed to know one another. And uh, one of the people at the table was Vic Fuchs who was then a vice president of the uh, NBER in New York. And uh, he was also noticed that I was, that I was uh, a stranger. And he came over and he said, well, who are you? And I was introduced to Jacob Mincer. I was introduced to a number of other, other people. I don't think Gary, Gary Becker by then had left, had left for, 
uh, Chicago, but uh, everybody else, all, all, all these other people were there. That was that was very nice, and and uh, it turned out that they were that when I got my dissertation done, one of my other uh, professors at the University of Washington, Yoram Barzell, wrote to I think wrote to Vic or to somebody uh, to suggest that I had a really good dissertation and that they they should uh, bring me in, and I was actually brought to the NBER with this uh, dissertation in hand. Um, and uh, and finished with a, uh, a full year full year um, fellowship. Uh, Chris Sims was the other person who got that fellowship. Very very nice. Of course, Chris is a colleague of mine here at Princeton now. Yeah. Uh, I'm so glad you brought up that NBE National Bureau of Economic Research research group that was in New York because at the I don't know if you were there during how long you were there or if you were there during the full period, but it had a remarkable group, all the way from Jim Heckman, Finus Welch, I think Mel Reeder for a while. Were they all there at the same time as you? Well, yeah, so in, so in fact, what ended up happening, I was, uh, I could have gone back to Wesleyan, but um, Finus uh, uh, Welch was there, and he, de- he decided to stay in New York and was uh, recruited as the, chair of the Graduate Center at City University, and he uh, made me an offer and Jim Smith an offer. Jim Smith was a new PhD in the market then, and uh, and I was uh, eligible to, to be poached, I guess, and uh, so Finus uh, recruited both of us. There's another story that I, th- that I should mention is that when I was a... Um, at the Bureau in my first year when I was a fellow, a fellow on leave from Wesleyan, my wife and I were quite desperate to uh, collect enough money that we, could, that we could buy a house. We had, a, we had two, two young children and we wanted to buy a house. And when I arrived at the NBER, uh, everyone was gone at the, to some conference in England except Jacob Mincer. <laughs> Mincer, came, Mincer came to me. And when I walked in and said, well, we hired this guy at uh, Columbia, and um, but he's not finished his, with his thesis yet, so we decided to give him a, 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 no courses for the fall, but he's, he was scheduled to teach an intermediate micro theory course. Would you be willing to do that? And uh, I said, well, yeah, uh, money money is worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, so I agreed to do this, and Mitzer said, "There's one condition, though, that the that that you, when you come to up to Columbia, you're going to need to share the office with the with this guy that they just hired." Well, this guy turned out to be Jim Heckman. <laughs> <laughs> I walked into uh, to the office, and Heckman was sitting at the desk, and and he said, "You know, well, who are you, and what have you done?" and uh, <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, I wrote, a, I wrote a dissertation. I just finished my dissertation. It's on fertility behavior. He was incredulous because he had gone to Princeton. <laughs> Using economic theory on a topic like fertility was forbidden at, at Princeton. <laughs> well, there was a group of, still here, by the way, a group of actual demographers. And they had some hostility to that, yeah. Yeah, and so he, so Jim, Jim switched into uh, labor economics. Jim and I ended up um, 
ended up doing some work later, and I stay, stayed. Uh, I stayed actually in New York for about three years, and then when um, and then another transition occurred that John Meyer, who was the NBER president, was succeeded by Marty Feldstein. The um, bureau, an anonymous donor, donated a um, money for an NBER West in Stanford. Vic Bukes was selected as the person to to uh, uh, go to go to Stanford, and and he he brought me and and Robert Michael to uh, Stanford with him to the NBER mm-hmm. to the NBER, and I had a joint and I had a joint appointment in the economics department with. Uh, there and I and I was there for uh, about four I, years. I, you know, you, we, you've mentioned three people. Well, some of them, uh, Jim Heckman, of course, has. I have done a podcast with him. You've mentioned three people. I wish I could do podcasts with. That's uh, and and they're not with us anymore. I almost got to Vic Fuchs in time, but he just died, as you know, a few yes. months ago. Uh, but you mentioned Vic and Jim Smith uh, and Finus Welch. Uh, the, I wasn't close enough. There was no way I could get even even try to find them. They were already gone. But there's a fourth one that you haven't mentioned yet that I think I'd like to ask you about. It's Lee Lillard because you and he wrote a paper in Econometrica that I much admired and read many years ago. How it's about income dynamics, and it has a quite modern flair to it. How did you come to write that? Well, so, so the NBER West, in some sense, was a continuation of the New York group in that uh, Lee Lillard had, had been Finus's student, and Finus brought Lee to, N, to the NBER uh, in, in New York. And then when, uh, and when uh, essentially there was sort of centrifugal force, and Jackman went to, Jackman went to Chicago and uh, ultimately, but actually came to the NBR West during that summer, uh, and uh, other people came that summer that were around, and uh, uh, Finus went to, went to Rand, and, uh, and Lee, uh, and, and, and uh, Lee was actually somebody that, uh, that Vic uh, also wanted to, to be at the NBER, so, so Lee was recruited there. Heckman and I had, had written a paper uh, uh, earlier, that was on appeared uh, in the in the um, JPE that was on female labor force participation, in which we used. Uh, I think we we made the first use of longitudinal data in the that was provided by the PSID. Uh, we had about five years of data, and we sort of showed uh, asked the question of how female labor force participation uh, uh, varied over over that time. So the idea of using longitudinal data was now starting to come up, and Lee and I, uh, Lee and I talked a lot about we were there was some use of Markov of sort of discrete discrete uh, Markov chain type models in economics at that time to account for mobility, and uh, we we uh, thought that they were kind of rigid and introduced some possibilities for. Misleading, misleading results, and we uh, spent quite a bit of time thinking about, well, how could you model this properly? And we we ended up with doing this kind of paper, and then we presented it at a World Econometrics meeting in uh, in uh, uh, Toronto, 
and our discussion discussant was Art Art uh, Goldberger, and Art Goldberger liked the paper, and he did something I have never seen replicated since, which is he wrote he wrote discussant comments that were like about a five-page outline of a way in which one could estimate our model using Lizarov. Oh, oh, you know, it's funny you say that because Art was the clearest writer in econometrics of all time. I'm sure that was helpful. Oh, it was absolutely helpful. And it, I have to say this, I never had an e econometrics course at uh, the University of Washington. Well, shame on you. So it was shame on me and shame on them. I mean, uh, Walter Oy was the person who was teaching econometrics and everybody was afraid of Walter at that time. <laughs> Although, and, and Walter's blackboard uh, blackboard talents as a blind person were, were really quite legendary. <laughs> he visited Princeton many times. I'm very fond of him. So was I. So at any rate, uh, uh, Lee, and I, uh, Lee and I spent a long time thinking about how to do this, and we wrote this paper, got good reviews from from uh, Art and actually this the econometric suggestions really made Lee's subsequent career. He, he essentially developed and expanded on what Art had talked about and, uh, and developed his own software and so forth. So we've covered a lot of people and we obviously have a lot of people that we know in common, many of whom are gone. Uh, I did want to ask you about two more things. Uh, first, you spent quite a lot of time uh, I know you were at Chicago for a length of time uh, and then moved on to Michigan. And at Michigan, I guess, uh, or maybe it was at Chicago, I'm not sure which, you were very active in uh, developing uh, the survey research that's used for studying retirement. Uh, that's a, that was a big operation. And you, and you not only were, I think, the director, but not only that, uh, you wrote several papers about uh, ways to improve the collection of data and other things. What What are your takeaways from that experience? Yeah, this was a, um, a a very interesting thing. I was I was at the University of Chicago at the time that Richard Sussman, who was a scientific director for the National Institute on Aging, had the idea that um, uh, you know, and Jim Smith was the author of a um, white paper commissioned by Sussman said that that the fact that we were facing demographic change and economic change uh, with the decline of mortality and the decline of fertility that was going to change age structures and create problems all around the world with uh, uh, dealing with uh, changes in the demographic structure and, and the aging of societies. And uh, Jim Smith wrote a thing in which he characterized the lack of data on this as a national disgrace. <laughs> and that was used by, that, that national disgrace line was used by Sussman to convince the NIA that they should invest in, in, uh, in a uh, survey. I was, I was at Chicago and I ended up putting together a team that included uh, Jim Smith and Lee Lillard and Michael Hurd and, and uh, uh, and a number of other a number of other people, and we wrote a uh, proposal for that. But we lost to Tom Jester, uh, who was at that time at the University of Michigan. I had known Tom before because he was the other vice president at the New York bureau at, at the same time that Vic Fuchs was. And uh, Tom won it, and Sussman said, "Well, the people who are 
who are the loser in the losing side should join with the winning side in designing the survey, which he did for, and he gave Michigan a million dollars to have workshops basically of experts um, in all kinds of areas to design what this survey should look like. And Tom Jester uh, organized that, and I was part of that effort, and, and uh, uh, as, were, as were people like Mike Hurd and Lee Lillard. And, uh, and uh, we, we designed the survey uh, by really asking questions about what, what is the research question that we could address if we added this piece of information. And we covered all kinds of areas uh, across disciplines. So we had labor economics and, uh, and wealth and income and uh, health and psychological disturbances and so forth. It's a body of longitudinal data that now covers from uh, 1992 until today is, is a continuing longitudinal survey called the Health and Retirement Study. And that also generated uh, an idea that Richard Sussman had to, uh, to um, uh, collect similar data in other countries. And that's, I just came back from uh, England where I talked with people at the English Longitudinal Study of Aging. And I'm on an advisory committee for the SHARE, which is a survey of health, aging, and retirement in Europe that covers 28 countries, uh, all the EU countries plus Switzerland and Israel. And also, and, and it uh, has uh, another uh, one that I was involved with is a, a survey in China that's similar. And these, these surveys all have comparable data. We were, we've been able to use the data to, uh, to papers that can compare across countries as well as within countries. A majority of the world's population is now covered by these surveys. Isn't that such fascinating? I, 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 I'd ask you to go into detail about what you think you found, but it's probably take uh, another podcast, I'm afraid. Uh, and there is one last question I'd like to ask you. I, you have actually written a, a, quite a few papers that are almost like detective work uh, that I was surprised when I went through your your curriculum video to see some of them. And uh, they're like a specific question. For example, let me give you one that really struck me. Uh, it's titled something like, why do uh, German women have uh, fewer children uh, but work less than Swedish women? Something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's a kind of a why question. I'm, first of all, I'm just curious, how, how did you answer that question, by the way? To some extent. I, it, it's, that's actually a paper that I don't remember all that well. Uh, <laughs> but, it, but it's a uh, paper. I, I, there was a woman named Siv Gustafsson who uh, was a Swedish economist who was in, was interested, actually was interested in this question. She had been a visitor at Chicago when I was there, and she invited me to come to uh, Stockholm uh, for uh, a, a few weeks in the in the uh, in the summer, uh, uh, and uh, one of the things that I did was she was interested in this question, and, and one of the reason one of the reasons that she had that she talked about quite a bit was the kind of role of of constraints that apparently German schools, for example, did not serve lunch at school. They had their the young kids come home. Mm. 
to eat eat their lunch, and that made it difficult for German women to have a career outside outside the household. Whereas in in uh, in uh, Sweden, there was a major uh, uh, enterprise which was the hiring of some women to care for the care for the children of other women. Later on, Sherwin Sherwin Rosen. Uh, wrote a paper on this that got him labeled as the great Satan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. So you, that's probably why you forgot this. Well, I just I was asked about it because I noticed there had been a, num- a number of papers that have popped up now and then. Uh, and obviously, they were well after your dissertation in many cases. And I wondered whether or not uh, you had a, a lesson that you learned from that. Are there some of those that you think went very well and others that for example there's another one you wrote about teen for about teen fertility which has to do with unwed mothers yes what did, no, how that, did you come to write that write that paper well i'd always been interested in in uh, in uh, fertility you mean that we talked about that at the beginning of the podcast yarn weiss and i had earlier written a paper on on children as kind of a public good and looking at sort of whether the kind of um, pro- what problems that a child being the joint joint uh, consumption good of a father and a mother created when the father and the mother split up or were were uh, uh, not married to one, and we looked at divorce settlements. Um, and a further question was that I addressed in this uh, out of wedlock childbearing paper was uh, was. What about the situation when men are not doing well, as was true with black men and and other low-income men who uh, wanted to have sex, were able to have sex, were not really able to to um, uh, support their support their children. And I, when I was at Chicago, I'd been I'd become friends with Bill Wilson, and Bill Wilson had talked a lot about this, and so I so I started thinking about well, the, this paper that I'd written with Weiss uh, has theoretical elements that carry over to this question of what happens where you have men who are who don't have a lot of economic uh, potential uh, to contribute to the family uh, don't marry, and women and women end up being um, uh, single moms. And uh, that was that was the the idea behind that paper. Interesting, Bob. Thanks for joining us. It was my pleasure. Our guest today has been Robert Wellis, professor of economics emeritus from the University of Michigan. Please join us again for the next episode of the work goes on, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.